Well, you may find yourself engaged in discussion with friends or family or even strangers regarding the reliability of the Bible. Many say it's just a bunch of stories written by men. But one of the ways we know it is the inspired Word of God is the fulfillment of prophecies that were made centuries and centuries before events happen. This is especially true regarding the first coming of Jesus as the Old Testament predicts where he'd be born, his life, his ministry, his death. In our study of Psalm 22, we're able to observe so many details about the death of Jesus, details that were written, as Trish mentioned, a thousand years prior. Even the thoughts and the words spoken by Jesus from the cross are recorded for us in Psalm 22. David gives a detailed description of death by crucifixion, even though it was never invented as a form of capital punishment at this point when David wrote it. Many have called this psalm the fifth gospel, or the gospel according to David. And the focus of the psalm is the Son of God who is completely forsaken by God. He will be put to death by evil men, yet there remains a confidence that a faithful God will deliver him and bring victory. So the study of this psalm will not only enlighten us to have a better picture of what Jesus endured, but it, it really does embolden us to proclaim the reliability of scriptures. You do have an evidence to give the next time somebody tells you it's a bunch of stories. And then I think as well we're encouraged that the word of God is real, it's true, it is the very breath of God, and we can depend on every word in it. Unlike other Psalms of David, which he speaks of his experience, and then there's a prophetic portion as well, this Psalm is all prophecy. It speaks exclusively about the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus. It is not a Psalm based on any part of the life of David. There's no biblical passage you read about his life that even remotely re resembles the suffering that he's writing about here. There's no confessing of sin, which typically goes with David's psalms, and no pleading for God to act in regard to David's enemies. There's nothing in the heading of the psalm that indicates it has anything to do with David and his personal experience. So it is strictly a prophetic psalm where David foretells the horrors of crucifixion. As you saw during the lesson, so many of the verses in this psalm are the very words spoken of Jesus that we read in the gospel accounts of his death. Even the smallest of details, men gambling for his clothing, are recorded and are for the fulfillment of this psalm. And amazingly, so much of it is fulfilled by his enemies, who would have never wanted to verify the truth that he's the Messiah. They didn't realize their words, their behavior. They were fulfilling prophecy from a thousand years prior. Besides giving completely accurate facts about the death of Jesus, this prophecy also gives us a glimpse into his agony while he suffered on the cross and what he was thinking while he was dying for all those who would believe on him. How amazing that we can actually read about the thoughts Jesus had in this psalm. And even in the horrific suffering that he was enduring at the cross, Jesus is thinking of the Old Testament regarding himself and scripture fulfilled. So instead of imagining looking up at Jesus on the cross, this psalm is how it was for Jesus from his perspective as he hung on the cross. So we should come away from our study here with such a great awe and thankfulness in our hearts that he endured all of this 
for our salvation. If you've given your life to Christ, then you will hopefully have a greater grasp of all that he did to make the purchase of your salvation possible. And if you've never really understood and personally trusted him to be your savior, then I pray that this study today will reveal the depths of his love for you, that you will really see the price that it cost to bring about reconciliation to a holy God. This psalm was recently taught in this church. It required five 50-minute messages. So I am blessed to have those resources available, but I have like 25 minutes. So obviously it's not going to be the same. So we look at the suffering of Jesus as he was rejected by God. And verse 1 of this psalm are the very words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly abandoned by God and forsaken by his father. He said these words while on the cross. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The entire land of Israel at this point is in complete darkness, as Matthew 27 describes. God brought this darkness about because he was pronouncing judgment on his son. Darkness was a symbol of judgment. So as Christ hung on the cross, he was being judged in the place of sinners. He experienced total abandonment and total rejection by the Father. When you think about the darkness, I mean, obviously everybody knew it was saw darkness or saw the lack of light that day, but whatever excuse they made for its cause, we know Jesus knew the reason for the darkness. He knew he was under judgment. He was being completely forsaken for all of eternity. Think about that, that the Father and the Son had perfect fellowship. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the idea of the Word was with God as they were face to face, always in perfect fellowship with each other. But now the face of the Father is completely hidden from the Son. Steve Lawson put it this way, it's as if uh, the call of a lost child searching for a father whose face he longed to see again. But the face of the Father cannot be found, <clears throat> he is purposely hidden from his Son. Notice Jesus doesn't cry out to God as, My Father, my Father, which he always referred to the Lord when he prayed in his earthly ministry to the Father, but he calls out, My God, my God. This is because while he hung on the cross, their spiritual intimacy was gone. Jesus was absolutely abandoned and orphaned and rejected with no relationship with the Father. You recall how the Father had spoken to him <clears throat> and to others who heard, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, as he carried on his earthly ministry here. However, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. A perfectly holy God could have nothing to do with Jesus who became sin on behalf of people while he was hanging on that cross. And though Jesus had never sinned while on the cross, he became a sin offering as he died as a substitute sin bearer for everyone who would ever believe in him. He was paying the penalty for their sins, the penalty that is spiritual and eternal death. That is what being abandoned and rejected by God the Father really is. So he experienced the complete weight of the Father's holy wrath, his hatred of our sin, your sin and my sin. This is the wrath each one of us deserves. But Paul describes this event in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So even though Jesus never stopped being holy or sinless, while on the cross the Father treated him as if he were guilty of all the sins that would ever be committed by all the people who would ever believe on him, though he committed none of them. This is why Jesus is crying out to God, though he knew full well why he was abandoned at that moment. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah also predicted the Father's abandonment. In Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. That is the essence of sin. That is the essence of how we've lived our life. Gone, turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Christ experienced hell, which is eternal abandonment by God. He did so um, in order that all who would believe in him would never, ever be abandoned by God. This truth ought to be so precious to us. Jesus really was condemned. He really was forsaken by the Father in our place. This is the heart of the gospel. There is nothing any person on earth can do to add to this work. He did it all. Jesus experienced a real abandonment. He just didn't feel abandoned. He was abandoned. You know, many of us feel abandoned or alone at times in our lives and completely don't sense God's presence at all. But that's how we feel. That's not reality. God never abandons his own. But Jesus, he felt it and he was totally abandoned. His cry of pain was because for the first time in all of eternity, the triune, triune Godhead turned his back on his son. This is the atoning work of Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. He was forsaken for us. As one writer put it, this is the very essence of the atonement, Jesus bearing our hell so that we might share his heaven. To be forsaken means that to have the light of God's countenance and the sense of his presence eclipsed, which is what happened to Jesus as he bore the wrath of God for our sin. So God had no intention at this time of stopping this abandonment. Jesus goes on to say, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. The idea that in spite of my groaning and crying for help, my cries haven't brought that help. The Father had withdrawn from Christ, and that is why he would not answer his pleas. He was silent. Verse 2, O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. When Jesus prayed in the daytime, that was a reference to the first three hours on the cross when the sun was still shining, but God was silent. And then at night, that reference is to the last three hours when darkness covered the entire land of Israel and God still did not answer him. As awful as the physical suffering is that we think about that he went through, there was nothing as horrible 
for Jesus as being forsaken by his beloved father. Jesus had never been alone in his whole earthly ministry. He was dependent on the Father. He did the Father's will, but now he's alone. And he did all that, so we will never have that experience. And then we see the sadness of Jesus expressed in his understanding even of the events in verse 3. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, forsaken, he thinks about the truth that God is holy. And in prayer, he says to the Father, yet you, you are holy. He, he understands that. And he knows that God is perfect and always done, does what is right, even in this sorrow. It's right. Then Jesus speaks of the praises of the people of Israel are so numerous towards God that he pictures God enthroned upon them. And what were they praising God for? Verses 4 and 5. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. The believers in Israel praised the Father because he never abandoned them or rejected them. But the spotless Lamb of God who never sinned was abandoned and rejected. There was no deliverance for him. Jesus knew the Father had helped others in the past when they called upon him. He also knew it is because of God's holiness that he could not help Jesus. So why has the Father so completely turned away from the Son? Jesus speaks about what he had become in verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus refers to himself as just a worm. Well, he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of all of his people. Jesus wasn't worthy of any help. He was as worthless as a worm. That's how he was being treated. How can we even begin to wrap our minds around the truth that the creator of the universe lowered himself to come to earth, to leave the glories of heaven, to leave ceaseless worship of angels who can't even look on him, praising him, holy, 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 to come to earth, to be put on a cross on the beams of what he created by the men he created, doing this act, yet willingly enduring all of this because of the depth of his love. Charles Spurgeon made this comment, this verse is a miracle in language. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such abasement as to be not only lower than the angels, but even lower than men? Yet such a double nature was found in the person of our Lord Jesus when bleeding on the tree. He felt himself to be comparable to a helpless, powerless, downtrodden worm, passive while crushed, and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. He selects the weakest of creatures, which is all flesh, and becomes, when trodden upon, writhing, quivering flesh, all utterly devoid of any might, except the strength to suffer. This was a true likeness of himself when his body and soul had become a mass of misery, the very essence of agony in the dying pangs of crucifixion. How grateful we should be for this amazing love. Look at all that he suffered in order to make salvation possible. His greatest suffering here on the cross was being rejected by God the Father, but it went beyond that. It also was the suffering by the insults of men. 
In verses 6 through 10, we see how men despised him, a reproach of men and despised by people, by the people. The people around Jesus at the cross considered him as worthless as a worm to be crushed. They treated him less than human. The Jewish spectators were the religious leaders who followed through. They wanted to watch this guy be crushed, as well as the Roman soldiers who held him in such contempt. They despised and hated him. He said, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. The very enemies of Jesus are insulting him. And in doing so, they don't even realize they're fulfilling the prophecy from a thousand years previous. Of course, the priests and religious leaders looking at, at Jesus at the cross, they knew this psalm. They were familiar with this psalm. And their only desire really in his crucifixion was to disprove Jesus being the Messiah. Yet they used the very words of this prophecy as they mocked him and they didn't even realize they're fulfilling prophecy. Wasn't it enough that they got their way of, with injustice by pressuring Pilate to have him crucified? Well, it wasn't enough. They followed him to the cross. They stood there as he's mangled and tortured, and they're insulting him, and they're mocking him. They did this by their verbal insults, or they're sneering at him. Then they used their own body languages and faces to convey their intense hatred. We read that they separate with the lip, which actually means they stuck out their tongues at him. Here are grown men, the spiritual leaders of a nation, sticking out their tongues, acting like children, trying to think of every derision they could possibly give to him. They wagged their heads, a gesture of mockery. It was a very form of derision, as I said, that everything that they could come up with to do. This one whom the holy angels covered their face from his gaze and cry out, holy, holy, holy. Here he is on the cross, letting vile, wicked men make their stupid gestures of contempt at him. Verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord, they're saying. Let him deliver you. Now the men are ridiculing his faith and ridiculing everything he said in presenting his faith. They're attacking his confidence in God. They're shouting out words like, hey, Jesus, you tell other people to trust you, but look at you. Look at you now. He doesn't care anything about you. Such vicious verbal attacks to a man suffering in so many ways on the cross. Jesus knows full well the experience of being attacked for what you believe. This is part of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings that Paul talks about, and it happens frequently to believers whose friends and family mock what they believe. Satan must have been thrilled, as he is a murderer from the beginning, had put these thoughts of murderous hatred in the minds of his enemies, the enemies of Christ. The ruling religious council were so threatened by Jesus, they were fearful of losing their leadership or their influence and all of their authority. John 11:47 tells us their motives. That's what led them to have this animosity and intense hatred for Jesus. But despite all the evil going on, Jesus never sinned. He kept trusting the Father. I love that 1 Peter 2, right before it goes into wives, submit to your husbands. We are to submit to the Father's will as Jesus, in the same way as he was suffering, kept entrusting himself to the Father. And that's what he was doing here. 
Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon, uh, trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. I mean, we're reading the thoughts of Jesus as he hung there. Jesus' response to these attacks was that from his earliest days in his incarnation, he was taught to trust God. He continues to trust God even now in the grief of crucifixion. Again, in verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Jesus is still asking the Father to come to his aid. His disciples had deserted him, the Father abandoned him. He's surrounded by taunting people as he endures the physical agony of the cross, which brings us to the next section, and that is the physical pain. The Roman soldiers' abuse is seen in verses 12 and 13. As the Lord speaks of them, them as being like the bulls of Bashan, as he's describing his enemies in a, in a picture. They're like wild, bloodthirsty animals, like vicious beasts who have surrounded their prey and are about to tear them apart. <clears throat> Jesus is describing the brute violence of the soldiers who carried out the crucifixion. These were sin-hardened men. You talk about calloused conscience. I mean, this is what you do. You nail spikes into people's bodies and torture them. You can read in Matthew 27 about their beating of Jesus, their mockery of him, they're making sport of him, putting a robe on him and his scourging and making him drag the cross to Golgotha until he collapsed. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My, my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust. This is a description of the physical pain associated with crucifixion. He is drained of all strength. It's just like water poured out. All the bones are out of joint and this is the feeling of those who are hoisted up on the beam after they had been nailed to the cross and then dropped into the deep hole and the jarring when it dropped. It would make all of their joints be twisted and come out of their normal position. He says his heart is like wax melted within me. All of his courage has melted away like wax would melt in intense heat from the sun. The Romans had perfected this torture because this maximized pain for, it could go three days. And there was very little possibility to sleep during this time. The intense pain was cramping and throbbing and hunger and dehydration and infection. And there was no relief. There was no going unconscious, like just going out. And the tongue cleaving to his mouth speaks of that impact of being dehydrated, which is why we read in the Gospel of John that Jesus said, I am thirsty. As Jesus approaches death, he acknowledges that it is God who is putting him to death, not the soldiers. They may be carried out the physical act. Men may be killing Jesus' body, but he knew it was God responsible for sending him to the grave. Isaiah 53, 4 says, He was smitten by God, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief. Verse 16, They pierced my hands and feet. Long iron nails, more like our railroad uh, spikes, were driven through the hands and feet of Jesus. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians 500 years after David wrote this. 
But the way they did it was to impale people and then lift them high up on a pole. Reminds me in the book of Esther how Haman ended up that way. But the Romans took the concept and then developed it. So they nailed their victims to a cross. And as they pounded those nails into him, they lifted him up on the cross completely naked. Unlike the nice pictures where he's got a little cloth hanging there. That was part of the humiliation. This is why verses 17 and 18 go on to say, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They're staring at Jesus. His bones are all twisted. They're in sight. This was fully, um, this was fulfilled exactly as seen in John 19. And this was the degrading humiliation. As Hebrews says, though Jesus endured the cross, he despised the shame. I love this quote from Spurgeon. The first Adam made us all naked, and therefore the second Adam became naked that he might clothe our naked souls. All of this Jesus endured so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How can we not be amazed at all he suffered willingly how can we not give our lives to him in total obedience and surrender? Psalm 22 continues. The entire tone now changes as the heart cry of the one of triumph and victory. The concluding verses really record for us what's in the mind of Jesus just before he finally died. He realized that his resurrection would cause the good news of what he was doing here on the cross to be proclaimed so that people like you and I could be saved from the penalty of our sin. As death approaches, Jesus is thrilled that the result of all he had suffered would bring a remedy to man's sin problem. Jesus had prayed to the Father to deliver him and there had been silence. That's because while he was dying for our sins, God turned away. But in verse 21, there is a change as Jesus says, you answer me. The abandonment is over just before he dies. And starting in verse 22, the Lord celebrates his victory over death, stating that his resurrection will cause the gospel to be preached and people will be saved. Sorry for this in here. So, who are the people who are going to make up the eventual church, the, those who will experience the salvation? Well, the Jewish people. We don't have time to go into all these verses, obviously. Verses 23 to 24. Jesus' initial disciples, I remind you, were all Jewish. When he appeared to the 12 disciples, or 11, then he also appeared to over 500 that believed in him. He was a witness. They were commissioned to go be witnesses. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants. And then in verses 25 through 28, it, it went beyond the borders of the Jewish people. It went to the Gentile world. It was included the Gentile who would believe. And then the future generations, 30 and 31, the final thoughts of Jesus on the cross are speak of a posterity that will serve him, a seed that will come to a people who will be born, that's you and me, that he has performed it. See, when Jesus died on the cross, you recall his final words, it is finished. Sin has been punished. All of God's righteous standards have been met. Our debt to God, because of our sin, was paid in full. And the Father was satisfied. That is propitiation. 
The work has already been done that is necessary to purchase our salvation. Ladies, there is absolutely nothing any human could add to this work. He wouldn't have even had to come to do this if a human work could pay any part in earning salvation. We have to accept the finished work of Christ was sufficient for our sin. I pray that none of you here have been misled to believe that salvation depends on something you do, or that you were baptized, or that you take communion, or that you're a member of a denomination. It's nothing to do with those things. Those are acts of obedience following your understanding that you have nothing to make you commendable to God. All that we've looked at, this is the gospel. This is what had to take place. We cannot add to this anything. It is finished, which literally means the debt is paid. You made it clear the work is complete. No human can add to that work. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. This is what Jesus did to make it possible for us to be right with God. So make sure you are trusting him and what he did for you, not this or that or whatever your fill in the blank is. I think I'll go to heaven because I know. The only reason you can know you're going to heaven is because your faith is in what he did on your behalf. There is no other way. And countless people under the umbrella of Christianity have been led astray by Satan's greatest deception to cause people to think their works will add and make it possible to go to heaven and their, their faith is in the wrong thing and they'll be so shocked that they won't go to heaven but they did all these things so don't let Satan deceive you in that way if you've trusted him then the issue is how are you going to live today in light of this truth does it matter how you act how you obey does it really matter Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So be diligent to give him your adoration and your thanks. He went to this amazing cost for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth that is in this song, the reliability of scripture. I thank you for all that you endured on our behalf. I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here who needs you, who hasn't come to the end of herself and going her own way, that you will open her eyes to understand you have done everything to purchase salvation, to rescue us from ourselves and from hell itself. Thank you for what you suffered and endured for sinners like us.